Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. You've made the best decision you could possibly make by tuning your ear to the Word of God. I would love to invite you to stay updated with us on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at Revival House Church. Father, bless this person and let the seed of the Word multiply 30, 60, and 100 times over in Jesus' name. Okay, so tonight, I'm going to be preaching a continuation. I asked my wife, you know, because I was like, it's Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and I started such a great Thanksgiving message Sunday. Who is here Sunday? Was that powerful, just understanding the power of Thanksgiving and praise in your life? It's the most powerful force available to you. It's more powerful than prayer. And it's like, that almost sounds sacrilegious, but it's true. Go back and watch that broadcast. I asked my wife, I said, should I continue that message, and just go right into the Thanksgiving, you know, it's in the theme. And she said, no, honey, you can't do that because you told everybody that you were going to finish next Sunday. So you, don't be, you, you can't be a liar, right? It's like, well, okay. So we're going to continue in pillars, the Pente- pillars of Pentecost tonight. Pillars of Pentecost. If you got a, a, a speech impediment, that's, good. that's a mouthful right there. Pillars of Pentecost. Okay, so what is the pillars of Pentecost? I, I, I've been telling you and helping you understand, right? We are Pentecostal believers. I don't know if everybody in here is. This church is a Pentecostal church. And when you think Pentecostal, you may have a totally wrong mindset, right? You're thinking jean skirt. You're thinking beehive. You're thinking women, they ain't got no makeup on. Praise God, we love them. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But that's not what Pentecostalism is. Pentecostalism is simply... A, a set of doctrines, it, and it can be summed up into a nutshell like this, that if you believe that the Acts chapter 2 experience is available today for believers to be baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, come on, say amen if you believe that, and you believe that all nine gifts of the Spirit are still active in the church today, right? Whenever the last apostle died, God didn't suck the Holy Ghost back up into heaven. You know, who believes that the gifts of the Spirit are still today in operation in the church? Well, by definition, then you are a Pentecostal believer. Amen. And so I've been going over these pillars. I think I've been going over them for me just as much as I've been going over them for you. The Lord, he told me to preach these pillars, and he's like, look, John, in this time, you got so much stuff. Guys, I'm telling you, you can get on Facebook. Who knows? Who's seen the Facebook prophets? You know what I'm talking about? It's like the people, all they do is they got a camera, they got a room, and, and it's just like some new thing. And that's really what you see is you just see these Christians constantly chasing after the new thing. Right? It's like, and I don't understand why. You know, the word is enough. Why are we getting bored with the word of God? And ultimately, that's what it is. It's like Christians are getting bored with the word of God. And so they're just chasing after the newest prophecy, right? Donald Trump's going to come back into office for the 47th time, and it hasn't happened yet. Are you all with me? I know you don't start saying stuff like that. You're going to make some people mad. But, you know, you, you see something all the time. There's just a new thing every other day. The Lord gave me this dream. The Lord showed me this. And, and there's nothing wrong. I believe in the gift of prophecy, obviously. I'm a Pentecostal believer. But, but the thing is, is that you need to build your life on fundamental theological pillars. And that's what these are. These are fundamental theological pillars. These pillars consist of, we've went through the first four, Are three, I'm going to give you number four today. Number one, exuberant worship. 
As Pentecostal believers, we're not ashamed to worship the Lord. Can you say amen? amen. That means that we lift our hands, we shout, we, we, we lift our voices, we clap our hands, we dance, we play instruments. Amen. With hands holy, lifted to the Lord, the Bible says. There's different forms of worship. We're not afraid to worship the Lord. Uh, we worship God in spirit and in truth. Number two, there's the threefold work of the Holy Ghost, and I'll, and I'll give it to you like this. We believe that there is a threefold work of the Holy Ghost. Number one, you get born again at salvation. When you confess your sin and you believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says his spirit joins with your spirit and you are literally born again, born of the spirit of God. Amen. There's a second work of the Holy Spirit called sanctification. What is sanctification? We don't just believe that God saves you in the garbage dump and then leaves you there, right? We actually believe that there's a grace that comes from the Holy Ghost that helps you live a, a pure life. You know, it's just like you have this doctrine, we're all sinners, we're all just going to sin every day. I understand people struggle, but the reality is we don't have to stay in that place, right? You don't have to stay a drug addict. You don't have to be a person that struggles with drugs the rest of your life and say, well, I'm saved. You don't have to be a person that struggles with porn the rest of your life. You don't have to struggle with alcohol the rest of your life. You don't have to struggle with anger. You don't have to struggle with uh, lust and, and, and different things. You can be free. There's a grace that comes from the Holy Ghost to live holy, set apart unto the Lord. And then the third work of the Holy Spirit is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's being baptized in the Holy Spirit is when God endues you with power for service. Say power. It's the same anointing that came on Jesus Christ comes on men and women today to carry out the mission of God, which is world evangelism, to preach the gospel, to be a witness. You know, there's a tangible power of God that comes on you to pray for sick people and see them healed. Cast out devils, the Bible says. Speak in new languages. Amen. And so actually part of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it, it, this is very pivotal for your theology, is we don't only believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we believe that people are baptized with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, right? Well, how many of you know you don't have to, be, you don't have to speak in tongues to be baptized in God's Spirit? I, I, I mean, really, theologically, according to the Word, you can't make that argument. When people got filled with the Holy Spirit, the first manifestation of it was the baptism of the, uh, speaking in other tongues. Okay, amen. So number four, we're going to get to the fourth theological pillar. I'm going to begin tonight. Maybe I'll get through it, maybe not. I won't keep you here all night, right, let you get home to your family. But number four, this is a, the theological pillar. This is so important. Number four, the rapture or the second coming of Jesus Christ, or to simplify it, the soon coming king. Amen. The soon coming king. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Y'all, this is such an important pillar that you need to build in your life because I'm going to tell you, your entire life, how you live your life, really will be determined by what you believe about this subject. Amen. I'll explain that. It's so important for you to understand that we are actually looking to a soon, say soon, not a distant coming king, a soon coming king, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
You know, the Bible says that there was a man, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in John chapter 1. Who was that flesh, that word that became flesh? It was Jesus. So the Bible says that, that God came in the form of a man once, and he went to the cross and he died, and he was buried in a tomb for three days, and he resurrected from the grave, and he ascended to heaven. And the Bible says that not only did he ascend to heaven, but he is coming back again. Amen. And we're looking forward to, I might add, which I'll cover in a moment, we were looking for the literal appearance of Jesus Christ. It's not metaphorical, a literal second coming of the Lord. Hallelujah. Come on, guys. Am I preaching to the right people today? Y'all happy to be in church tonight? Hallelujah. Okay. So I want to help make this distinction. This is very important for you to to know this. I I never knew this growing up. I never knew that the rapture and the second coming were two different events. Never knew that. Maybe some of you are in here and you're like, I didn't know that. In fact, as a, as a kid, I always heard of, that Jesus was coming back again. And I knew that, you know, something I, I had heard about the Left Behind movies. You know, I'd seen the old videos where they're in a church and all of a sudden it's like, poof, like lightning strikes. And then there's clothes laying on the ground everywhere. And it's like. God sucked you out butt naked and you're just gone. I remember being a kid actually one time, I swear, I, I was a kid in the summertime. And my whole family, my sister, my mom, and my dad, my dad may have been at work, but my mom and my sister got up and they went and walked the dogs. And I was asleep, right? I was sleeping in. I was a lazy kid in the summertime. And I remember getting up and running around the house. And I had just enough knowledge that, like, my mom was gone, my sister was gone, everyone was gone. And I began to think for a moment, did the rapture happen? Did they, did they leave and I'm left here? And, you know, and so I'm going to explain to you these two events, the rapture of the church and the second coming of the Lord. Those are two different events. Okay, so I'll, I'll help break this down. The Bible teaches that there are two appearances of Christ that we're looking forward to. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes tonight. Number one, the coming of Jesus to the air. The coming of Jesus to the air. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back in the air. What is this talking about? Say the rapture. Say the rapture. Jesus comes in the air and not to the earth. This is the event where Jesus comes to the air, but he actually never touches ground on the earth. And what does he do? He gathers his saints. So let's look at this in Scripture. Turn your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's read verse 13 through 17. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Did you know this, that as a believer, you don't grieve like everyone else? This is so important. You know, a a true man or woman of God's funeral should not be like everybody else's funeral. And the Bible says we don't grieve like everyone else. Why do we not grieve like everyone else? For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we believe that when he returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Think about this event. When Jesus comes back, people, like, they don't even know. Like, right? That's where you always miss it. Even in those old videos of the rapture, you just saw, boom, a snap, and everyone was gone. But that's actually not what the Bible says happens. 
There's actually a progression to this. It says that when he comes back, he will bring back with him those who have died. And in fact, this is interesting, but if you read King James or New King James, it says those who have fallen asleep. Amen. You know, you need to really understand that. If you got a mama, a daddy, a pappy, an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, a spouse that died, and you know that they were a firm believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible doesn't say that they died. The Bible says that they just simply fell asleep. They're just taking a nap, right? And so it says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. That's pretty crazy. Look at this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. If you have a highlighter, highlight that because you're going to need to remember that in a moment. With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. So the Bible says that when Jesus comes, you're going to literally hear this shout, this trumpet, this voice. It's, and whenever it's a trumpet, you know, it's not like Louis Armstrong. You know, it's like a shofire, like the blast of a horn. And it says, so right, Jesus is going to come, and you'll hear this blast. And it says, first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, say with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. That's, that's comforting, you know, because again, people, people always put on their Facebook posts, right? Like their grandma, who is a strong believer in the Lord died and they'll say, I'll see you in grandma. I'll see you in grandma. I'll see you in heaven, granny. I'll see you in heaven, granny. You will see them in heaven, but actually according to the Bible, you'll see them before heaven. Do you know that? Isn't that amazing? We think, and this is how you really need to think about this, that we think, People wonder what heaven's going to be like. You know, are we just going to be like Casper the Friendly Ghost floating around everywhere? You know, you go to touch something. Anybody ever seen ghosts with Patrick Swayze? You know, your hand just goes right through the table. Can't try to push the quarter. Can't do anything. Amen. Y'all lighten up a little bit. It's okay. We can laugh. Maybe I'm not funny. I don't know. People wonder, you know, and they think that we'll just be floating around in heaven. No, I'm telling you that if you're here, which I believe, guys, we're not only, I'll prove this in a moment, we're not in the last days, we're in the last moments of the last days. I firmly believe that from Scripture. And so if you're here when this event takes place, you're not going to meet some loved one in heaven. The Bible says that you will watch them physically come up out of the ground. In fact, older ministers, older Pentecostals, they believe this. That's why they actually buried. Uh, they, they chose to be buried. Have you ever seen when someone gets buried in like a suit? Old ministers would get buried in their suit, and they'd get buried with their Bible right there across their chest. Why? Because they know when that trumpet blows, they're coming up. They're coming out of that grave. And when they come out of that grave, man, they're like, I'm going to go meet the Lord with my three-piece suit on, with my word, with my suit, ready to go. Amen. Amen. And that's literally, you know, you got to think about that. 
So it's like that's what the Bible says. We don't grieve like everyone else because when they pass away, they're not dead and gone forever. It's just momentary. In fact, if you're here when that event takes place, you will watch them come out of the grave, and they won't be just some ghost that you can't touch. You will be able to embrace. You'll be able to touch. You'll be able to hold. You'll be able to hug, physically see, communicate, and interact with those that have went before us. When he comes back, First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive remain on the earth. We'll be caught up in the clouds to, to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. This is where you actually get this, this doctrine of the rapture. Say the rapture. So you might hear some knuckleheads say things like, the rapture is nowhere in the Bible. But the Bible says... We will be caught up. Say caught up. That word caught up. So this is where we get the word rapture. They're like, well, the rapture is not in the Bible, right? That, that, that's a fake event. That's a man-made event. The word caught up in the Greek is the word harpazo. The word harpazo comes from a Latin word called rapturo. Guess what rapturo means? Caught up. Guess where? that's where we get this phrase. Rapture. Say rapture. We get it from that word right there, caught up. It's the Latin word rapturo, the Greek word harpazo. It means to be caught away, snatched away. Hallelujah. So people that say, oh, the rapture's not in the Bible. Well, just study a little bit. Amen. You know, study before you talk. Just, just spend more time learning and listening before you just start talking about stuff. Praise God. Okay. So. Let's look at this event a little bit more clearly. The Bible gives us more insight to this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn your Bible over there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. The Bible says, there is an order to the resurrection. Say an order. So that's what I was talking about. You know, we just saw the videos where the boom, you heard the sound and everyone was gone and there's clothes laying around. No, there's actually an order. It says Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Amen. So that means what event? You'll see the dead coming out of their grave. It's powerful. Now flip down to verse 51 here. It says, so at this event, and then we'll put this whole scenario together to help you see this here. In 51 it says, let me reveal to you this wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. Say the last trumpet. So the Bible doesn't just teach a one-horn blast. It teaches a two-horn blast. Guys, and it, you know, and that's, what's, that's the thing. I'll get to this point a little bit later on, but you need to be ready to meet the Lord. The Bible says we don't know the day or the hour of his return, but we'll know the season. So therefore, you must be ready at all times. The Bible says this event will happen in the blink of an eye. Do you know how fast your eye blinks? Your eye blinks at a fraction of one second. That's how fast your eye can blink. It's not even one whole second. It's a fraction of one second. What does that tell you? There's so many people waiting, right? They think, well, I'll get right with God one day. I'll get right with God, and you, get, you got kids that think things like that, like, well, 
I'm not, I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not ready to serve the Lord because I got some more sex I want to have and some more drugs I want to do and some more things that I want to mess around with. And one day when I get older, then I can get my life set, right? Then I'll, I'll settle down, I'll get married, I'll get plugged into a church, and I'll start following the Lord. The Bible says that when this event happens, it'll happen in the blink, in the twinkling of an eye. You know what that means? You won't have time to get right. You won't have time. Well, oh my gosh, I see the clouds coming. Oh, he's coming. I better run to the altar and repent. It'll be too late. It'll happen in the twinkling of an eye. That's why you can't wait till the event takes place to get ready. You have to be ready before it takes place. Hallelujah. You've got to be ready, ready to meet the Lord. In the blink of an eye, it says, when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. See, that's what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immoral, uh, Im, not immoral bodies, immortal bodies. When our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I got to take this off. It's getting hot in here. Hallelujah. Okay, so let's put all of this together. The Bible says that you will literally see Christ coming in the air. You will hear a trumpet blast. There will be a blast of a ram's horn, and then instantaneously everybody who died believing in Christ will be raised from the grave. And guess what will happen? We'll begin to actually go and meet the Lord in the air, and the Bible says there will be a second trumpet blast, and instantaneously with them we will all be transformed. Say transformed. What does it mean transformed? We'll receive an incorruptible body. A body that will never die. A body that will never grow old. A body that will never get sick. We'll receive a glorified body, the Bible says. And you're like, what is a glorified body? What does that look like? We actually have a picture. A glorified body looks like Jesus Christ after he was resurrected from the dead. The Bible says he was the first of the harvest of the resurrection. Right? So think about Jesus. You know, people think, again, what are we going to look like in heaven? Are we going to float around with harps and have wings in a big white room like it's just going to be a big white empty void space and we'll just float around no when Jesus was resurrected think he had a glorified body he was able to walk through walls right but at the same time he wasn't just a spirit or a ghost it says that Thomas touched the the wounds in his hand and he Thomas touched the wounds in his side the Bible says that Jesus cooked breakfast for his disciples on the seashore. The Bible says that he spent many times eating with them and drinking with them and telling them about the kingdom. So what does that tell you? In this new form, you'll be able to eat, you'll be able to, be, you'll be able to drink, you'll be able to be felt, to be touched. You'll have a glorified body, a physical body. I want you to say physical. It will be physical, but it won't be earthly. It will be physical in the heavenly sense. You know, it's, I don't want to get into weird stuff, but anyways. So I want you to get this point tonight. We are looking forward to the literal appearance of Jesus Christ. 
Bryson, do me a favor and go turn that heat down a little bit for me. We are looking forward to the literal appearance of Jesus Christ. That's very important. Look at Acts chapter 1. You know, you have a bunch of people nowadays that believe a bunch of weird things. Like, number one, they believe Christ isn't really coming back. The Bible never says that. Or they believe, number two, it was all metaphorical, right? All that stuff that was said, it's just all metaphorical. And so they think that, like, it won't ever be an event that literally takes place. It's just all a big metaphor. It's just all uh, metaphorical. Or there's those that actually believe that it already took place, right? Christ already came back. He already did what he said he was going to do. When he destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, that was his second coming. And and they actually begin to tell people that we're living in the new heaven and the new earth. Y'all, I'm telling you, if we're living in the new heaven and the new earth, someone got ripped off. Are you with me? You know, you got to be smoking some good stuff if you think that we're living in the new heaven and the new earth. Absolutely insane. There's no way. Because the, the Bible actually says that in this time that death will be swallowed up. There will be no more death. There will be no more, uh, no more sin. There will be no more tears. That, that he will take our sorrow and give us joy. Amen. He'll take our mourning and give us rejoicing. You know, people don't die of cancer in the new heaven and new earth. Okay, so look at Acts chapter 1. Let's look at verse 9 through 11. The Bible says this. After saying this, he was taken up. Jesus was taken up into a cloud, and while they were watching, they could no longer see him. So imagine this. They're literally watching Jesus like ascend into a cloud. Like they're watching him, he's talking to them, and all of a sudden he physically he physically just begins to ascend and he goes higher and higher and higher until they can no longer see him. And so the Bible says this, as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white robed men suddenly stood among them and said, men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the manner in the same way that you saw him go. So what does that tell you? Jesus is metaphorically coming back? No, they literally saw him ascend until they couldn't even see him anymore. And the angel said that the same way that you saw him go is the same way that you'll see him come. So we are looking forward to the literal appearance of Jesus Christ. The literal second coming. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, and I'm going to go ahead and show you this as well, but this is the next event that takes place on the prophetic timeline. Put the timeline up for me. This is the next event to take place on the prophetic timeline. What are we waiting to happen? What, what, what's the next part of the Bible that is to be filled? I'm telling you guys, the next thing, according to the Bible, that will take place is the rapture of the church. I gave you this little timeline here. The next thing will, will be the rapture. And I believe soon, uh, I mean, if not immediately after the, re- the rapture, you'll have the Antichrist revealed. If you don't know what that is, just stick around and, and you'll learn a little bit about that. But the Bible says that there will come a man, a, a dictator, a one world leader, one world power, who will come forth conquering to conquer. He will subdue nations. He will enforce, as we'll read in a moment, the whole world to come under one world government, 
one world power, one world military. He will require everyone, rich, and, rich or poor, fray, a slave or free, to be given a, a mark on their right hand and on their forehead, and without that mark, which represents the name of the beast or the number, they can't buy, sell, or trade anything. And in fact, under this Antichrist regime, if you're a believer here on the earth and you miss the catching away of the saints, the Bible says that you'll actually be beheaded for your faith. You know, so I try to tell Christians, there's people that are waiting. And I'll go ahead and tell you this, there's those that believe that if you miss the rapture, you can't be saved. That's actually false. Do you know that? The Bible says that there will be many people saved during the tribulation. But I'm going to tell you, if you get saved in the tribulation, you're going to lose your life for it. So you can live for Jesus for free now and make impact in this world, or you can sit around and wait and then, and then figure out that everything that we're saying is true and it'll be too late, and then decide to follow Jesus because you see it's true. So now it's like either I'm going to heaven or I'm going straight to hell, so I have to choose Jesus now or I'm going to go to hell without a doubt. And if you choose Jesus in the Antichrist's system and world government, you'll lose your head for it according to the book of Revelation. Are y'all with me? So you'll have the rapture. The Antichrist is revealed. You'll have what's known as the seven-year tribulation. Seven years, the, the worst seven years that the earth has ever seen. We think, people are like, oh my gosh, COVID. You think we're in the tribulation? Guys, COVID, I mean 99.8% recovery rate. It ain't like the things, the wrath that's released in the tribulation. There will be judgments released in the tribulation where the Bible says one-third of the world's population will be killed off. Entire oceans, entire will be turned to blood. I mean, crazy things. And so, this is, if you've ever wondered, you can get a picture of this timeline. A quick breakdown. We have the rapture, the Antichrist revealed, the seven-year tribulation, the second coming. Then you'll have the millennial reign. You'll have the final judgment and then eternity. Those are the things we were missing on the timeline, Antonio. We'll have the, the millennial reign, the final judgment, and then eternity. Amen. Y'all still with me here? Man, I'm doing good. It's 714. I'm flying. I'm going to tell you, you know, and I'm not trying to take anybody to Bible school or anything tonight, but I do want you to know this. I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. But there are essentially three mainstream views when it comes to the catching away of the church. Number one, there's what's known as the pre-tribulation rapture. Say pre-trib. What's pre-trib? That's, that's when you believe that the church will be taken off of the earth before the Antichrist comes, before the seven years takes place that I just described to you. There's those that believe the mid-tribulation rapture. What is that? They believe that we'll be here for the first three and a half years, and at the halfway mark, we'll be raptured out. And then there's those that they're referred to as the post-tribulation. They basically believe that the church is going to go through all seven years. We're going to go through all of that, and then at the end, we'll be caught up to meet the Lord. And so I'm going to give you two reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I could give you far more than two, but I'll just give you two for the sake of time tonight. This is why I believe the church has to be gone before all these events take place. Amen. I'll tell you why. Number one is because of this. If you believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, right, that we're going to have to endure this and be subject to the system at all in any way, 
then you have to completely throw out the doctrine of authority. You have to completely throw out the doctrine of the believer's authority. I'll give you an example. Look at Luke 10. Who knows the scripture by heart? Luke 10, 19. Amen. I guess I need to do a better job. All right, Luke 10, 19. I'm just kidding. All right, it says this. Look, Jesus said, I've given you authority over all, say all, all the power of the enemy, all the power, not a little bit of the power, all the power I've given you. Who's you? The church. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So not just the individual Christian, but the church has all authority. All, guys, if you look at the Greek word there for all, guess what it means? It means all. It means what it says. It means every little bit, not 98%, and then 2%, the devil still has free reign. Ninety, Not 99.9, 100%. We have authority over his power. So you got to understand that. If, if you believe what the scripture says, uh, let me give you a few more examples. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. These are great verses to memorize in regards to the believer's authority. Apostle Paul said in verse 19, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heavenly realms. Now he, being Jesus, is far above. Say far above. He is so far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. That means Jesus is, a, is far above any earthly leader and any spiritual ruler. That means he's higher than any ambassador, any president, any governor, and he's higher than any devil or demon. Not just a little bit. Far above. Say far above. And God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things. Why? For the benefit of the church. Who's the church? That's you. That's me. And it says, and the church is his body. We are the body of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is your hand disconnected from your body? Is your hand a part of the body? Yes, so think about this. If the Bible is saying... The, the, the person, the body, the person of Jesus Christ is seated on a throne so far above any power. And you are his body. You are a member of him. You're seated on that same throne. What does it mean about you and me? It means that we are far above any spiritual ruler, power, principality in this world and in the unseen world. Say far above. You know, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, look at this. It says... You were dead because of your sins in verse 13. Your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. So when Jesus nailed our transgressions to the cross, it says in, the, in, in this way, he disarmed. Say disarmed. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Guess what? The enemy's disarmed. The devil's disarmed. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, you can hold up the shield of faith, and you can quench every fiery dart of the enemy. What does that mean? That the believer has authority, put it all together, to live completely immune from the, the hand of the devil. 
He doesn't have the right to touch us. The Bible says the son holds us securely in his hand and the evil one touches us not. See, it's irrefutable in the scripture. So you understand why the church has to be gone? Because it wouldn't make sense for this antichrist power to be able to step on the earth and the church have to live subject to it for one second. Guys, it's impossible. It's impossible, I said. You know, because if there was a man that was under the spirit of the Antichrist and he stepped up in the Middle East and he began to do things, you know, all it would take is one church coming together to pray to bind his power. You don't believe me. You think that 2020 through 2022 was bad? Guys, what they had planned was so much worse than what actually happened. They planned to totally, totally sink this nation. They, told, they planned to totally bring this nation under a one world power, under a one world government. They planned to have you forfeit all of your rights, to lay down everything, to destroy the economy. Unemployment was supposed to be so high. Everything was just supposed to be completely destroyed. But guys, guess what? It failed. It completely failed and it backfired. And everything that they tried, they could not succeed in it. Why? Because the church is still on the earth. There were still tithing Christians. There were still praying Christians. And so what did you see? The enemy was able to do a few things because of, you know, people allowing him basically to overstep his authority. But he was not able to fully carry out what he intended because the church is the authority on the earth. And if a church rises up and says, you are not allowed to do it, the devil has no power to do it. Amen. Hallelujah. So that's why I believe the church has to be gone before this can take place. The second reason why I believe in what's called a pre-tribulation rapture is because you have to understand that there is no mention of the church during the events of the tribulation in the book of Revelation. Write that down. There is not, not one or two or three like, oh, there's a few mentions. No, there is zero mentions of the church during the events of the tribulation in the book of Revelation. Zero. I'll show you in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The book of Revelation begins with John basically saying he had a vision. He was caught up. He saw the Lamb of God. He's basically setting the book up. And then in the first chapter 2 and chapter 3, you have Jesus writing seven letters to seven different churches. Jesus is addressing nothing but the church in in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And, you know, those were seven literal churches, but as I've taught here from this pulpit before, that those churches were not only literal churches, but they actually represented seven different times throughout church history. Right? And the last being the Laodicean church, the last kind of condition before the return of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so he has these seven letters he's writing to seven different churches, and I want you to look in Revelation chapter 4. He addresses the last church, and then in Revelation 4, John says, When I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and and the voice that I heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. Say a trumpet blast. Where did we hear the trumpet blast? In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. He heard the voice like the trumpet blast. And what did the voice say? 
come up here and I will show you what must happen. And instantly he said, I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So what do you have taking place? Apostle John literally hears the trumpet blast and he says, come up here. And what takes place, he was caught up into the third heaven where he was in the throne room of God. So any theologian that seriously studies the Bible will tell you that's a type, that's a shadow, that's a kind of a picture of the rapture of the church. You have the church in Revelation 2, the church in Revelation 3. Now all of a sudden a trumpet blast come up here and no mention of the church at all for the rest of the events of the seven years of tribulation. Am I being too deep tonight? Am I helping y'all? Amen. You need to get this last point about the rapture, and it's this. The rapture is known as a signless event. The rapture is known as a signless event, meaning that it can happen at any moment. I'll say that one more time. The rapture is a signless event. Say signless. Okay, that's interesting because... To give you a little bit of understanding, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, he, he gives, the whole entire chapter is signs leading up to his second coming. They asked him, Lord, when are you coming back? When are you going to fulfill all the things that you said? And he said, no man knows the hour. Not one man. No man knows the hour. He said, not even the angels know the hour. He said, the son doesn't even know the hour. Only the father knows the hour. So he said that though we don't know the exact day or hour, he says that you'll know when, when you see these signs taking place, you'll know that my return is very close, even right at the door. So there's tons of signs. There's tons of, I should say, prophetic mile markers, right? Anybody ever drove out in the country? I remember living out in New Mexico, man. It's like you're driving on Mars. It's flat. It's just, I just remember being a kid and my grandma, what mile marker did they live out past that? Five, right? I remember being a kid. I would count mile marker number one, mile marker number two. And once we got past that mile marker, I knew it was time to turn, right? There's, there's prophetic mile markers that Jesus said, when you see this, when you see this, when you see this, when you see those things, you'll know that it is the hour of my return. You may not know the exact moment, but you'll know the season of it. Are you with me? But so there, you need to understand this, though, that the return of Jesus Christ is separate from the rapture of the church. When he's talking about the return, put that prophetic timeline back up. Put that timeline up. When he's talking about his return, he's talking about that event right at the end of that timeline called the second coming. So what do you see way before that event? You see the rapture, the Antichrist, the seven-year tribulation. You see all these other things. So he said that there will be all these indicators telling you when that last event is about to take place. So there is many signs that point to it. But the thing about the rapture is that there's no signs in the Bible. Basically, what he's saying is that there's nothing that has to take place in order for this to happen. So theoretically, what does that mean? The rapture could take place at any moment. Guys, the church could only have, hypothetically, one more week left on the earth. They could have one more year left on the earth. That's, you understand why this theology is so important? What would you do for God if you really knew, if you knew, if there was a clock that said you have 365 days until that trumpet blast, what would you do for God? How would you live? Would you, were you worried about money? 
Right? Would you be worried about your retirement? Would you be worried? And I'm not telling you to not be wise and to live foolish. Amen. But you understand what I'm saying. How would you live if you could see a timer counting down? But that's how the urgency the Bible says. You must be a servant that, that it doesn't fall asleep, doesn't lose oil in their lamp, doesn't think that the master's delayed and begin to abuse the other servants in the household. You must be ready at every waking moment, constantly ready to meet the Lord. What does that mean? I live every day like it's my last day. I live every week, every month, every year. We should go into 2023 like it's our last year on planet Earth. We're going to run like we've never ran before. We're going to plan and, and execute and, and preach the gospel and, and win souls and do outreach and, and do everything that we can like it's our last year on planet Earth. That's how a Christian should live. And I'll go ahead and tell you this point as well. You get all these weirdos that believe different things. I should be more kind, but, well, I just believe that it, you know, gee, how many, you know, that's a lie. That's man-made. Jesus isn't coming back. I've never met one Christian that believes like that who's on fire for God. I'm not telling you they don't exist. I'm telling you I've never met one. I've never met one that walks around, I don't believe in the second coming of Christ. You know, all that type of believing produces in them? Lethargy. I don't feel any need to win souls. I don't feel any need to give. I don't feel any need to live on fire because I think somehow, some way, I'm already in the new, the new heavens and the new earth. And maybe I'm already in the millennial reign and, and it's spiritual placement, right? I mean, and they're just so lethargic. No souls, nothing ever done for God. They work their job and go home and watch Netflix and that's the entire existence of their life. I've never met an on-fire Christian that believes that way. Every on-fire Christian that's doing anything for God, I'm telling you, you really talk to them that are making major moves, they believe in the soon, literal second coming of Jesus Christ. It changes how you do things. So the rapture is known as a signless event, meaning it can happen at any moment. I believe God, I will tell you this though, I believe God is waiting till the last moment for the harvest's sake. I don't... As, as, as you saw on that timeline, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you this as well, that the rapture and the second coming are two separate events separated by at least seven years. At least, say at least. I'm not telling you seven years definitely, but there's seven-year tribulation. Uh, I know the Antichrist revealed, that's actually kind of a little bit inaccurate, the Antichrist revealed is the kickstarter to the seven-year tribulation. That the moment that, you know, I'll go ahead and tell you, in the book of Daniel, it talks about a peace treaty. There will be this ruler that comes and makes a peace treaty with the people of Israel. The moment that that peace treaty is made, the world will immediately enter into the seven-year tribulation. And I believe the church is going to be here up until the very last moment of it. I don't know if it'll be a month. I don't know if it'll be a year. I don't know if it'll be a week. But I believe that God's going to. For He says that it's his will that none should perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. God's not just trying to leave this world destroyed. He's trying to keep his church here because his church is his hands and his feet to the earth. If he's going to win souls, he has to do it through us. So what is he going to do? He's going to keep us here till the very last moment. I believe that. And then the church will be caught up 
to meet the Lord in the air, and then this antichrist system and spirit and man can step into full power. So now let's go over this. We just have a few more minutes. Man, I've done a lot of preaching in 30 minutes. Amen. Number two, we covered the rapture. Now, number two, let's cover this. The second coming, or uh, yeah, the second coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus to the earth. Number two, the coming of Jesus to the earth. This is also known in the Bible as the battle of Armageddon. It's found in your Bible at the end of the book of Revelation. You'll see what's known as the battle of Armageddon. That is actually the second coming of the Lord. Because as I told you, the difference between the rapture and the second coming is in the rapture, he never touches the earth. But the Bible says that when he comes back in the battle of Armageddon, he will actually touch the earth. And the Bible actually tells us exactly where he'll touch the earth. That he'll land and his foot will land on the Mount of Olives and he'll split it in two. So we know that he's going to come back and exactly where he's going to come back. And so let's look at this in, in the scripture, Jude 1, 14 through 15. It says, Enoch, who lived in seventh, the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these things. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. Who, are the, who is that? Say, that's me. Because when he comes back, the church had already gone to be with him. The church is already with him during that seven-year period, right? And so when he comes back at the end of that, he's coming back with his countless thousands of holy ones to execute judgment on the people of this world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things that they've done and for the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. You see that countless thousands? Look at Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 21. The Bible says, Then I saw heaven open, and I saw a white horse was standing there. Its rider, it says its rider was named Faithful and True. Who's Faithful and True? Jesus. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Who was the Word of God? Jesus. Say Jesus. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of white, pure linen, followed him on white horses. That say that's us. Hallelujah. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod and he will release his fear, the, fierce wrath, the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from the wine press. Wow. Hallelujah. So it says in verse 17 that I saw an angel standing in the sun shouting. He says, shouting to the vultures flying in the sky, come gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come eat the flesh of the kings, the generals, the strong warriors, the horses, their riders, and all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. So what are the two kind of things you see happening? Jesus comes back. He's riding on a horse. The, the army of the Lord, which is us, and white linen come riding on horses with him. He slays his enemies. They're all slain in a field. Literally, the vultures are eating their carcasses, right? I know it sounds morbid, but I need you to see this because I'm going to show you another text in a moment. It says, then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one on the horse and his army. Who is that beast? Say the Antichrist. 
the Antichrist, goes forth conquering. He gets a, 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 a world of military power. Power is coming together to fight against God's people. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Okay, let's keep moving. So let's look at Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. Watch for the day of the Lord is coming. Say the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? It's this this battle that takes place in Revelation 19. The second coming of the Lord where he doesn't come to snatch the church, meet the church in the air. He comes back to destroy his enemies. It says the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. You see that. You see the nations coming against Jerusalem, Israel. Haven't you ever wondered how we are thousands and thousands of years removed from this and you still see the world's obsession with this little nation? What is Israel, like 70 miles from top to bottom? Is, it, is, it, is that no? You have no idea. Oh, I thought you were telling me no. I believe that Israel is like 70 miles What is the world's obsession with this tiny little nation, even today? But it goes on to say, it says, half the population will be taken in captivity and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Amen. So when Jesus comes back, In his second coming, we know where his feet are touching the ground. The Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move toward the north and half towards the south. You will flee through this valley, for it will reach across Azal. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. Who the holy ones? Say us. The saints that are with him. Praise God. So you see those two major things. The rapture is when the Lord comes and, and, and he comes in the air at least seven years before this event and, and he takes the church, the Antichrist comes into his place of power, the Antichrist rules on the earth for seven years, and at the end of this rule where he's conquered nations, conquered armies, created a one-world military, one-world power to fight against God and the people of God, Christ comes and destroys the armies of the world that are fighting against his people. See the difference between those two things? Amen. All right, so let's answer this last question tonight. Do we have... So I told you that the rapture is a signless event, right? It could happen at any time. But can we get an idea of the timeline of the rapture in the scripture? Although we don't know exactly when these things will take place, can we get an idea of when these things will take place? Yes, we can. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. 27 through 36. Matthew chapter 24, 27 through 36, it says, 
For as lightning flashes in the east and shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes, just as the gathering of vultures show that the carcass is nearby. Where did we just see those vultures at? Revelation 19. So is this talking about the rapture? No. It's talking about Armageddon. It's talking about the second coming. It says, for as the light shines in the east, it says, just as the gathering of vultures shows that the carcass is nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then at last, the sign of the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the people of the earth. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in heaven with power and great glory. He says he'll send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. People are like, well, isn't that talking about the rapture? No, it's not talking about the rapture. It's actually God gathering his people. They all, there's a huge exodus of the Jewish people coming back to the Holy Land. Now, learn this lesson. I want you to see this in verse 32. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, say all these things. What are all these things? Well, I'll tell you, in Matthew 24, it's all the events of the seven-year tribulation coming to a conclusion at the end with the final battle with the second coming of the Lord. When you see all these things, you can know his return is very near right at the door. And look at this. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my word will never disappear. However, no one knows the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. Okay, so say the fig tree. Let's read verse 32 and 34 again. It says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you'll know the summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things take place, you'll know that the return is very near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, what generation? You say this generation. Well, what generation? Was he talking about the generation present? No, he was saying the generation that sees the fig tree begin to bud will not pass away until all these things take place, right? He said, learn this lesson from the fig tree. He's talking in the context of this fig tree. Are y'all with me? So follow me here. The generation that sees the fig tree bud will not pass away until all these things come to pass. Amen. So what is this fig tree then? If this generation that sees this fig tree bud, what is the fig tree? I'm not going to read all of these scriptures, but I'll basically summarize. You can write these down. Hosea 9.10, Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 8.13, Micah 4.4. 4. All of those are references of a fig tree that, is, that depicts the nation of Israel. Say Israel. So in all of those passages, Hosea 9.10, Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 8.13, Micah 4.4, all of them depict Israel as this fig tree. It uses this fig tree to depict the nation of Israel. Amen. 
Okay, so the fig tree is Israel. Say the fig tree is Israel. Look at Luke chapter 13. I'll give you another passage that proves this. Luke 13, 6 through 9. This is the parable of the barren what? Fig tree. Anybody got an NLT Bible? Did you see that? It's the parable of the barren fig tree. Jesus told the story, a man planted a what? A fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. Say three years. Okay, who was in this story the person that came for three years constantly trying to find fruit on the fig tree? Jesus. His ministry was totally isolated to the nation of Israel. He didn't go to the Gentiles. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Africa. He didn't go to North America. What did he do for three years? He, he healed the sick. He cast out devils. He preached the good news, trying to get fruit from this fig tree. And so finally, after three years, there's, he's, there's no fruit. What happened after three years? Did the Jews receive him? They rejected him. They've crucified him. So guess what? He said, cut it down. It's taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, you can cut it down. Amen. So basically, after the end of three years, Jesus, let's look at another passage here. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. There was no figs after three years. Matthew 23, 29 through 36. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build tombs of the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never joined in in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. What is he saying? Finish what your ancestors started. What being what? Kill the prophet. What is he talking about? Himself. Go ahead and finish what they've been doing. You're going to crucify me. You snakes, you son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion. You will flog others with whips and synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all God's people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. And I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. So guess what? Jesus is basically saying, as, and I'll give you one more text here, you're going to reject me, you're going to kill me, you're going to finish the work that your forefathers did. And so what's, what's coming on this generation, right? The present generation, judgment, say judgment. Are y'all still with me? Y'all still with me? Look at Luke 19. Forty-one through forty-four. As he came closer to Jerusalem, say Jerusalem. He saw the city ahead, and he began to weep and said, "How I wish today that all of you would understand the way of peace!" But now it is too late. 
Peace is hidden before your eyes. Why? Because he came for three years and they rejected him and it, it was too late. And look what he said. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and circle you, close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground, your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Okay, so that judgment that we just read about in Matthew 23 where he said the judgment's going to come on this generation that's the same judgment he's talking about there in, in, in Luke chapter 19. And this actually historically took place. Did you know that in the year 70 AD, y'all, I know I'm getting deep. Are y'all still with me? I love you. We're almost done here. In the year 70 AD, Rome actually came into Israel, built walls, built ramps, encircled, surrounded Jerusalem, and destroyed the city. In fact, they destroyed the temple, literally not leaving one stone left on top of another stone. What happened? You know, let me ask you like this. Did you know that the Jewish people, without that temple, they had no religion? Without that temple, they had no way to be made right with God. Why? Because they couldn't offer sacrifices anymore. They couldn't have atonement for sin according to the Levitical law. So you know what happened when Rome came in in 70 AD and destroyed that temple? Guess what? The fig tree was literally chopped down to a stump. Israel was chopped down. The Jewish religion was completely destroyed. It was completely obliterated in that judgment that took place. You know, it is interesting as well. Say 70 AD. Jesus prophesied that in approximately 30 to 33 AD. In this time, many theologians say that a Jewish generation was 40 years. What's 30 plus 40? 70. Literally in one generation. In this generation, this, ju this judgment will come. Are y'all still with me? Okay, so let's go back to Matthew chapter 24, and I'm about to end with this. I've went over a ton of material tonight. But we got our friend visiting from DFW. We can't, we can't just half do this, right? So he said, when you see the fig tree blossom, when you see the fig tree blossom, the generation that sees the fig tree blossom shall not pass away till all of these things come to pass. So remember, in 70 AD, as we've just shown, the fig tree was chopped down. Amen. And so for literally 70 AD, 1,000 years, almost 2,000 years go by, and guess what? That fig tree remained a stump. The fig tree, which was Israel, say Israel, literally was always domineered, always governed, and always occupied by other world powers. Always. They, were nev they, they never owned their own land. They were always occupied by other world powers. And, until finally, in May of 1948, May 14th exactly, guess what happened? Israel became, for the first time in almost 2,000 years, it became a sovereign nation. Since it was destroyed in 70 AD, it became a sovereign nation. You know what literally took place? Guess what? The stump began to blossom. The fig tree began to blossom. You know what happened in 1948, on May 14th, 1948? What else happened? I believe a prophetic time clock was started. Click, 
It was started. And guess what? The words come back. The generation that sees the fig tree blossom will not pass away till all of these things come to pass. How long ago was, was uh, May 14th, 1948? Was, was that 77 years ago? 74 years ago. Say 74 years. And so, again, you have this stump. Literally no movement, nothing has ever happened for nearly 2,000 years. And then May of 1948, it begins to blossom. It becomes a sovereign nation. And 70 years to the day that it became a sovereign nation, you know what else happened? President Donald Trump restored Jerusalem as the capital. As the capital. He brought the United States Embassy back. And guess what? Jerusalem became the capital city. Guys, you understand how prophetic that this is. The Antichrist, it says in the, Revel, in the book of Revelation, he will spend the last three and a half years of his regime ruling from the capital city of Jerusalem. Did you know that? How can he rule from the capital city of Jerusalem if Jerusalem's not even the capital city of Israel? So you know that even theologians only, you know, uh, 80 years ago were writing things. I remember reading Finnis Dake's notes before 1948 and him talking about how the next biblical thing that somehow, someway has to happen is, is Israel has to become a nation again and Jerusalem must be restored. The land must be restored back to the Jews in that area. And, and literally, it happened in our lifetime in 2017. You know, to even take it a step further, did you know that they've already begun to build a third temple? which I'll show you why that's significant in a moment. The next prophetic thing that I believe we'll begin to see take place in our lifetime is a third temple being reconstructed in Israel. I'm telling y'all, you wait around, but you watch the news. When you start seeing those bricks being laid, you better get ready. You better start. Make sure, oh my gosh, if I'm not right, I better get right today. And then anybody else see a, another significant um, thing happened in the news in the last year? Red Heifer was born. You know, and this is what's important. According to the Levitical law, anybody see that, the red heifer? And I'm like, what is this red heifer? What does that mean? There was a red heifer born in Texas. According to their law, they had to have, yeah, amen, Texas. They had to have a perfect red heifer that met their, their, their specifications of their priest. It had to be just absolutely perfect. And did you know that a, a perfect red heifer has not been born in the last 2,000 years? This is the first time it's been born in 2,000 years. What's significant about the red heifer? They have to have the blood of that red heifer to cleanse a third temple after it's born. Without the blood of the red heifer, a, a, a third temple could not be cleansed in order to institute Levitical law and sacrifices again. So what does that tell you? They already have the red heifer. They have its ashes. They have its blood. They have the third temple ready to rock and roll. I mean, it could literally happen. We're, I, it, there's just a few things pending for all of these things to fall into place. And it's happened in less than 100 years. Why is that? How is it that Israel remains dormant for nearly 2,000 years? And then in our lifetime, we've seen boom, 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 all this stuff begin to happen that's never happened before. Because when the fig tree blossoms, that generation cannot pass away before all of these things are fulfilled. What are all these things? The second coming of Christ. Does the second coming of Christ happen at the beginning or the end? It happens at the end. 
Amen. So again, let's kind of, that was 70, how many years? 70 what? 74 years. 74 years ago. So if we put it on this timeline that everything has to come to a conclusion within that generation. I know I said some say that it was a 40-year generation. If you read the book of Genesis, a generation was 100 years. Let's just take hypothetically. I'm not one that throws out dates and times. I hate that. You know, I don't even try to do that. But let's just say 100 years. Let's say if 100 years was a generation from 1948 to 2048, right? 2040, hypothetically, that's when everything has to be fulfilled, including the second coming of Christ. We know the rapture has to happen at least seven years before that. What does that put you at? At least 2041. I mean, you're just looking at that. How far is 2041? 19 years? I'm not telling you in 2041 we're going to get rapture. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you can get an idea. I don't know the exact time. But I do know this. Again, we don't know the the exact time, but we know the season, right? We know the season. And the rapture could happen at any moment. You know, I, I believe that. I don't know if I, if I could confidently look you in the eye and say, I believe that we'll be here for another 30 years. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. That's why I'm living to run. Amen. Are y'all still with me here? I'm going to give you this last point in these last three minutes. And the last point is this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The church must leave in order for the Antichrist to come to power. I've already talked about that, but let's just put the nail in the coffin. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica. Is that? Yeah. And he goes on to say, to you who belong to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Dear brothers and sisters, he goes on to say, we can't help but to thank God for you because your faith is flourishing. Am I reading the right thing? That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm sorry. Wasting my own time here. Now, dear brothers and sisters, chapter 2, let us clarify some things about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we'll be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say the day of the Lord has already began. Don't believe them, even if they claim they have a spiritual vision or a revelation or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For the day will not come until a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The one who brings destruction. Who is that man of lawlessness? Say the Antichrist. So that day cannot come until the Antichrist has to first be revealed. Are you all still with me? Okay, so he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. So that's a significant thing because guess what? Right now in Jerusalem, there is no temple. So what does that mean? In order for this to happen, there has to be a temple. So you should really just blow your mind that we're living in a time where you can Google it and see news articles of, of this, the temple. I've actually read sources that say that every piece that's needed is already prefabricated. And in fact, that they could, re, they could put that temple together in three days. You know, wow, that's prophetically just insane. As Jesus said, 
I'll tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Obviously, he was talking about his body as the temple, but there's a whole other level of prophetic application that literally a third temple being built back in three days. It's insane. So he will sit in the temple. So in order for there to be a temple, in order for this to happen, there has to be a temple. Amen. In order for there to be a temple, Jerusalem has to be restored back to Israel. In order for Jerusalem to be restored back to Israel, Israel had to gain sovereignty over its own nation. See these dominoes? Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back. For he can only be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly and it will remain secret until the one who is holding him back steps out of the way. Other translations say till the restrainer steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. When does the Lord destroy this man of lawlessness? In Revelation 19 at the Battle of Armageddon. So when is his coming? At the Battle of Armageddon. Amen. But what I really want you to see is, say the restrainer. So the one, he says, the one that's holding him back, he cannot come until the one who is holding him back is moved out of the way. Did you see that in the text? So let's identify the possibilities. Who is this restrainer that is holding back the Antichrist? Any theologian will tell you there's only three logical possibilities of what it could be. Number one, the government. Number two, the Holy Spirit. Number three, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's logically think these things through. Number one, remember that that whoever this restrainer is, it has to be removed before he can step into his place of power. So let's ask this question. According to the scriptures, is the government going to be removed off of the earth? Say no. How do we know that? Because the Antichrist will actually rule in a one-world government. He will rule in a dictatorship, which is a form of government. So we know government will still be here. Number two, the Holy Spirit. Is it the Holy Spirit that's removed? Well, let's think about this for two reasons. Do you really believe that the church is going to be left, but the Holy Spirit's going to be taken? That God's going to just allow his church to have the Holy Ghost, and then the second the Antichrist steps up into this place of power, the church, the, God's going to go, oh, here, let me strip you of the Holy Ghost and the witness and the power of the anointing and just let my bride be raped and abused and destroyed and drugged through the mud by this man known as the Antichrist. Do you think that that's what God would do? Absolutely not. And I'll tell you another reason why it's not the Holy Spirit is because the Bible says that people will still be saved during the tribulation. In fact, who's heard the term 144,000? What is that 144,000 in the book of Revelation? There's 12,000 Jews from 12 tribes of Israel that will be saved during the tribulation. Do you know the Bible says that no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God? So if we know that at least 144,000 Jews are going to be saved, we know that the Holy Spirit's not sucked up off the earth. So wait, if the government's not leaving and the Holy Spirit's not leaving, there's only one-third logical conclusion, which lines up with the rest of Scripture. The church has to be removed before the Antichrist can come into power. Hallelujah. This is good for your theology. Amen. Right believing produces right action. 
I'm just going to ask this question. I want to ask everybody here. Are you ready? Are we ready? This is a pivotal pillar of Pentecost. Everything that I just taught you is a pivotal pillar of doctrine. Pivotal pillar of Pentecost. I didn't even realize it. Why? Because it drives you to work. Last scripture, John 9, 34, Jesus said, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. Why do, why do we run? Why do people that believe like this, man, why are they in the streets winning souls? Why are they throwing money like a madman into the things of God? Because Jesus said the night is coming when no man can work. Amen. Hallelujah. Let me pray over you guys, and I'm going to dismiss you with that tonight. Father, I thank you for these people. I pray tonight that through your word and the delivering of your word, that you would just put a fire in them that comes straight from you. That, Lord, that you would put a hunger in them, you would put a thirst in them to run in these last days, to run in these last moments. I pray that anybody that's not on assignment, that they would clearly understand what you want them to do and that they would get on assignment, that they would waste no time. Lord, give them revelation knowledge. Give them wisdom and understanding and baptize us afresh in the Holy Ghost to run after souls, to run after the kingdom, to, to occupy till you come, to violently take the kingdom by force because we know the night is coming when no man can work. So let us not sleep. Let us not grow lethargic, but let us work in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray and thank you that you come behind our work and that you will come our work to be multiplied in Jesus' name. For every effort and every ounce of energy that we spend running after your kingdom, you'll come behind us and you'll accelerate it. That, Lord, you said the day is coming when, when, the, when the harvester will overtake the sower. When the harvester will overtake the sower, that the harvest just comes so fast, it's coming faster than the seeds even going out. And I thank you for that hour of harvest in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I pray what you said to pray. I pray and ask you to send harvesters into the field tonight in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, that we would live every day, every week, every month, and every year ready and expecting the soon return of Jesus Christ, the physical second coming of the Lord. We thank you, Lord. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. If you believe it and receive it, just give the Lord a shout of praise tonight. Amen. Hallelujah. I love you guys. Hey, happy Thanksgiving. Amen. I love y'all. Thank you for coming to Wednesday night Bible study. You're dismissed. God bless you. Lord, bless them for being hearers of the word in Jesus' name. If you would like to sow a seed or partner with this work that the Lord is doing, check out the description of this podcast or go to www.rhctx.com forward slash give. You can find all the ways to give on that page. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Until next time, this is John Wallace.